0: There's strong correlational data. You don't eat enough iron, or you have an anemia, you get real significant depression and mood problems and anxiety problems. And then also the treatment data that, for example, if you give people an iron supplement when you treat them with antidepressant, they get better
1: faster. Hi, everyone. Drew Pro here, host of the Broken Brain Podcast. Today we're interviewing Dr. Drew Ramsey. He's a psychiatrist, author, farmer, and founder of the Brain Food Clinic in New York City. And we're talking about all things brain food and brain nutrients. Drew's got a new book out. It's called Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, and it's fantastic. We're gonna dive right in. Stay tuned. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Bio Optimizers. So one of the reasons, of course, I started this podcast because I love helping people learn how to optimize their health. And many people are okay feeling just okay day to day, but with a few simple changes, you can feel freaking amazing instead. And why wouldn't you want to? Diet and lifestyle, super important, and those are the foundation. And certain supplements can also be really helpful. Because even if you're eating 100% organic, we know that our soil just does not have the same nutrient quality it did 100 years ago. So one of the key nutrients that's missing, often from our soil, and definitely in people's diets, is magnesium most of our soil has become depleted of magnesium. So it's a tough mineral to get just through diet alone. And 80% of Americans are actually deficient in it. But here's the thing it's crucial for hundreds of reactions, almost 400 different reactions in the body, and it impacts everything from metabolism to sleep, neurological health, energy, pain, muscle function, stress response, and so many other essential areas of health. So here's the kicker. I recently found a magnesium supplement I love from a company called BioOptimizers. Their magnesium breakthrough formula contains seven different forms, which have all different functions in the body. Shout out to my brother-in-law, Dr. Neil Patel, who was the first person that told me about BioOptimizers Magnesium. There is truly nothing like it on the market. I really noticed a difference in my sleep, and I've been handing it out to my friends and family who also have issues when it comes to stress levels or managing their sleep. All of BioOptimizers products are soy-free, gluten-free, lactose-free, non-GMO, free of chemicals and fillers and made with all natural ingredients. I love that they give back to their community too. For every 10 bottles they sold, they donate one to someone in need. Right now, you can get BioOptimizers Magnesium Breakthrough for 10% off. Just go to BioOptimizers.com backslash brain. That's biooptimizers, B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S.com slash brain and use code BRAIN10 and you'll get 10% off this extremely helpful magnesium formula. I think you're going to love it as much as I do. Now back to today's episode. Dr. Drew Ramsey, welcome back to the Broken Brain Podcast. It's a pleasure and an honor to have you here.
0: It's great to be here with you, Drew. Uh, it's always fun to be back on. Nice to check in with you, and uh, especially these days, so much is happening.
1: So much is happening. And, um, you know, I just feel so thankful for our larger wellness community, which includes yourself, pioneers like yourself who are putting out good actionable information. Because after a year of a lot, let's just keep it at that a lot, a lot, uh, people are actually really looking for practical tools, not just from the repercussions they've fed from felt from being in lockdown, anxieties that have come along with that, tools to help help them sort of weave through the pandemic. But also I think that just brought up a lot of things that people want to do in general, like the reprioritization of everything, of our mental health, our overall health, our brain health. So I just want to express some gratitude to you because um, I think you're part of a growing group of people who are just like okay, look, this is the world that we have. This is the reality. Let's find the tools that can actually help us and uh, support us in the process of getting better better, and healthier. So just want to share that gratitude with you.
0: Well, uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. I mean, and, and uh, it's nice that we have a community of people. And I do agree with that assessment. I think that people are really ready to double down on personal health. And it feels like for a decade, we've all been talking about being too busy and setting better boundaries and all these things. And then I think the pandemic just smacked everybody with that of like, are you living the life that you want? Like with intention and, and none of us have ever had everything taken away as it has been over the last year. And so I do think at the time, it is a year for radical change, it's a year for transformation. It's a year not to just have things go back and have like a frenzy when everything opens up, but to really, I hope for a lot of people take take whatever they've learned Um, which we all had to learn something deep about ourselves and and really use that to achieve new great heights, which I think is quite possible.
1: You know, in the Vedic uh, tradition and the Hindu background, which is culturally what I grew up in, um, even though I don't identify as being Hindu, I love some of the stories and the lessons from all teachings, Hinduism or anything else that's out there, any other religions. So in the Hindu tradition, there is uh, Shiva and Shiva is both the goddess of destruction, but also creation. Creation and destruction go hand in hand. And I think about that often when we go through both challenging times as a community and as an individual. Sometimes for things to get better in our life, things have to break down. And it's in the breakdown that there's a breakthrough that ends up coming up. So you just talked about that in the context of the pandemic and what that has led for a lot of people, the opening of hey, we really need a breakthrough out of this breakdown. I want to start off with your breakdown and your breakthrough, which is your hero's journey. Take us to the beginning of how you even started to dive into this field of nutritional psychiatry and your mental health.
0: All right, Drew. And that's the deep end of the pool. Let's just hop right in. I mean, that this this book comes from a really personal spot, like all books do. And I've always been interested in how I can do a better job taking care of my mental health. That for me, like a lot of people started in is physical health. I was an athlete in college. I was a pole vaulter. I played basketball. I ran, uh, ran track. And, uh, and, and I was one of those, uh, you know, in some ways, early adopters thinking about Plant based diets, thinking about low fat diets. And, and this was back in the 90s. That I was in college and, and then in medical school. I was like one of the only vegetarian medical students at Indiana. I was probably the only one at Indiana University, right? This is like, I don't know, again, the 90s. And that diet wasn't really great for my mental health at that point. I was really struggling with a lot of fatigue, especially in the afternoon. You know, in some ways, all medical students, it's just a it's like a test for your mental health. I mean, it's hard to go through medical training without really having bouts of depression, having extreme and significant recurrent anxiety. I mean, it's just kind of a part of almost every doctor's, I think, journey and training. You just encounter a lot of limits in yourself, in um, society, in medicine, and you just see a lot of really traumatic things very quickly. And I moved to New York, and I guess everyone should know, I'm, I'm from a farm in Indiana. So I grew up in Indiana and kind of went through all my education here through Earl College, then to uh, Indiana University Medical School, and then came out when I was 26 to New York, uh, to New York City, to Columbia University, where I started my training as an adult psychiatrist. And and so my interest in food really was, you know, mainly personal, like I was known as this like super healthy guy, um, uh, and, and and I was very healthy and, and, and you know, working out and biking a lot, But, um, you know, I'd say my mental health was, uh, you know, I was like, I think a lot of people with mental health challenges, right? I was um, looking pretty good, right? In medical school, I'm in a top residency, Um, but having a lot of kind of doubts and questions and more negative thoughts than I wanted, and maybe more emotional sensitivity and and more social anxiety than I wanted. And so... um, and so there were a lot of things I did about that. I mean, one, I've been in psychotherapy for a long time and I really find that to be a really useful personal process, especially as, as a man, um, but just as a person. Um, but the other is, is as I changed my diet, I started for the first time then in, in, in over a decade, I started, it was weird. I added in grass-fed beef um, uh, during some travels right after residency. I was down in South America. I was on a beef ranch that you know, some friends of my parents had. And it just, it was interesting to me how good it smelled. And it was like, in it was, and it was also like sort of the setting. Like these people raise these animals. Like this is the, these folks are doing it right. Like why wouldn't I? Um, um, and then the data started coming out uh, around seafood and mental health. And I started getting really curious about that. And, and then suddenly I'm kind of like a nutritional psychiatrist. I mean, this is before that was a word, but I came up with this idea for my first book, The Happiness Diet, just really straight out of the clinic. You know, I was sitting with a patient and she just described her story. And I realized like everything she was describing, the panic, the sadness, the feeling overwhelmed. It's like, it was all made so much worse by the way she was eating. And I'd never, ever asked her about that. And I just kind of had this idea, like what, if you're like going to tell people what to eat as a psychiatrist, like, what would that be? And nobody was really talking about that or thinking about it. And so that's really just led to all this work, these books, this, this notion of brain food and, and watching nutritional psychiatry emerge as a field where now, as you're talking, you know, uh, 15 years later, 20 years later, we've got randomized trials. We have Great, you know, correlational data. None of that's great, but like we have really strong correlational uh, data from large data sets. Um, four or five now randomized clinical trials showing that food can impact mental health and brain health. So, so I don't know. My journey is just I've gotten the blessing of being around in a time where all that is kind of popping and swirling together, and conventional medicine and the wellness world are like mixing it up. And it's very—I uh, feel very blessed to be part of
1: it. And absolutely, they're very much coming together. And um, so you had your N of one experience where you changed your own diet and started seeing the improvements, both for your mental health and your overall health, too. What can you remember as being one of the first like pivotal studies that you read where you were like, OK, it's not just me. There seems to be some traction in this field and people who are researching it.
0: There are two. The first was a study that looked at bipolar illness, which rates of bipolar illness and schizophrenia are kind of universally the same, pretty much, um, especially schizophrenia. Bipolar disorder, though, there was a study that came out where the there was a correlation between the rate of bipolar illness in a country and the amount of seafood that got consumed. And that just really, that got me really curious because we were talking about fish oil back then, but it just got me really curious about fish. And again, this, that was one of the first connections. I was like, gosh, you know, in medicine, all we do is talk about like supplements and vitamins and nutrients and we don't actually talk about food. Right? we don't add, we don't tell patients like, Hey, you know, you should eat a diet with more of these nutrients. We say like your iron is low. You should take an iron supplement. See you in a year. And, and that just, that, that really struck me just that. Uh, and then the second study was uh, a study out of the sun Navarro data set. This is um, uh, run by um, Almuda Sanchez uh, Villegas and her group. And they're in the Canary Islands in Spain. So really essential Mediterranean diet. And this was a really large study of 10,000 university students that followed them for 4.4 years. So as correlational studies go, this a, we're, we're prospectives we are following people over time and, or they are, and they're measuring how much they like, how closely they eat the Mediterranean diet and then following them for depression. And and when they like, looked at all of the data, they found that there was between a 30 to 50% reduction in the risk of depression over that time for people who ate most like the Mediterranean diet, more traditional diet. So, so those two studies really just woke me up that this is, um, this is really something. And then my first book came out and, you know, the minute you start talking about something, right? And this, I'm sure everyone listening has had this, right? Where you feel you're alone with something. Uh, and then you start sharing and talking about it. And suddenly you, you are building a community and you're getting reinforcement for this idea because so many talks I gave or podcasts I gave people an email and say something really inspiring. Like, hey, I was really suicidal and depressed and then I changed my food. Or I had celiac disease and I didn't know it and had such bad anxiety. And then I figured it out. And, and thanks for spreading the word. And I just kept getting those messages and I still get those messages and uh, that's just, you can't stop once you start hearing that. And then once you start seeing it and then, and then we get to imply it in pl- clinical practice, which is scary. But, you know, for the first time you are sitting with a patient in psychotherapy, we're doing all the stuff, talk about psychotherapy, we're thinking about meds and, you know, your parents. And then I guess I just remember the first time saying like, Hey, can you tell me a little bit about what you eat? People we were like, Why? <laughs> it's just, like, it like that's that's exactly why, Drew. It's like because no matter how educated folks are, we don't make a connection between what we eat and our mental health, and and there's such such great connections between that. And so that, that's that's uh it's a long-winded answer. Those are the two studies that pop into my head when you asked me what kind of got me got me vibing on this.
1: So I think that our audience is uh, probably out of any podcast that you could be on is very much attuned. We've also had you on before. They're very much in tune with the big picture of what you're bringing to the table, what you talk about in your new book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, um, which by the way, hats off to uh, your team and the illustration team that was involved with that. You have the most beautiful illustrations oh, inside of that that I feel like We're really help people.
0: He's talking about these. And and uh, the illustration team is a great story from Instagram. These are Katrin Wytek. She heard... Uh, a podcast, actually, I think it was the podcast with uh, Mark, and she turned it into a little sketch note. I remember and she seeing it.
1: it. I remember I, seeing it when it first came out.
0: And I reshared it. And and this is another, I think, good example for me of you know what inspired me is people really resonated with that, and they liked the information, and and it and it it helped people access the information because all of us learn differently, and I'm a really visual learner. And, and so then Katrin's just started doing these for us and for each nutrient. And then when the new book was in formation, it was missing something. And I just, I said, Katrin, do you want to do illustrations for the new book? And so there's the first book that she's, she's illustrated. It won't be the last. And, and it was just a dream because it felt like it added this other layer to the book. We do some recipe formulas in there. So like pesto, something that's really important for me that people start eating more of in terms of brain food. And it's a great example of a construction that gives you leafy greens. It gives you nuts. It gives you olive oil. It gives you garlic, and it, and you can do so many different versions of that. So, but I'm glad to like the illustrations, Drew.
1: Yeah, and so one lesson inside of that is that anybody who's a creator or has something to put out in the world, you know, you don't have to wait to be hired. You could start putting it out there and just tag people on Instagram. There's people like yourself that are always paying attention. If you're a writer, or creator, or somebody just. Get to work put your content out there start tagging people you never know you might end up in drew ramsey's next book or somebody else out there as well so on the point of illustrations you know there's this great section in the book called 12 nutrients for better brain health and when i was opening and sharing about our audience i think on the big picture when it comes to gut microbiome the gut-brain connection, you know, inflammation. I feel like our audience is very well-versed in that topic just because we address it, you know, almost every other episode, we talk about some aspect of it, um, but I would love to use um, these explanations that you have inside of here. For example, you were just talking about iron, right? Now, a lot of people have heard about iron in the context of, you know, somebody might say like, "I'm, oh, I'm anemic and I or I'm iron deficient. Um, but they often don't think about iron and the role that it plays in, and the mechanism that it plays when it comes to our brain health. So walk us through kind of some of the stuff and why did you include iron in there? And what did you want people to know, um, about this nutrient and why it's one of the 12 nutrients for better brain health?
0: Yeah. So everybody's Got a piece of food advice. A piece of food advice for you uh, these days, everyone listening. And so, I wanted to be really clear in this book, kind of where I came up with these foods, my method for thinking about food, which I think is a little different as opposed to trying to really help people move towards a dietary pattern based on, let's say ethical values like a vegan diet or um, you know certain pieces of science, avoiding certain foods uh, um, for this reason or that reason. I really wanted to be very straightforward of looking for what nutrients are most related to the most disabling illness in the world, which is depression. And, and by extension as depression and anxiety kind of weave together. Uh, what can we learn about the most important nutrients? And there, there are 12 of them in the literature that really stand out. Iron is one of them. Zinc is another. Omega-3 fats are another. B12. You know, a lot of nutrients that we hear about. Um, and by strongly uh, related in the science, meaning there's strong correlational data. You don't eat enough iron or you have an anemia, you, you get real significant depression and mood problems and anxiety problems. And then also treatment data that, for example, if you give people an iron supplement when you treat them with antidepressant. They get better faster. So when we found the nutrients, those twelve nutrients have both of these um, kind of types of data around them. And then we wanted—I always want to illustrate, like, what does this do in your brain? Because that's the—that's you know—that's my business. Brain food is my business. Your brain is what I'm trying to change. And iron is so interesting. One, just your brain requires so much oxygen, right? And so part of keeping a healthy vascular system and having healthy red blood cells is the transport of oxygen. The other is that iron. Is involved in the biochemical pathways that make those brain chemicals. Lots of people have heard of norepinephrine, dopamine, serotonin. It's a cofactor in those uh, in those chemical reactions. And so, I, I like people knowing a little bit around the uh, how these nutrients function in our brain because I think that connection helps us make those choices. You know, you're not just eating fish because some expert says so. You're eating fancy seafood because you have a knowledge about why EPA and DHA, the long-chain omega-3 fats, are absolutely vital to healthy, vibrant brains. I just think that empowers people. I mean, that's the point of, of sharing this knowledge, I think, is mental health. Sure, you if you need help from an expert like me, please come. That's that's what we do. We're good at it. it it's it's getting treatment in mental health might be hard, but getting people better in mental health settings, I don't think it, is that hard. We have a lot of resources. But I think people really need to reprioritize and, and focus on their mental health and mental fitness and how to really achieve that every day. So high iron foods are part of that, like foods that have these other nutrients are part of that.
1: Yeah. And give us a couple High iron foods, foods that are part of your favorites that you want.
0: Yeah, so my uh, my iron side. So so when I talk about uh, iron, I love. So you know, one of my favorite high iron foods are clams because clams are also one of the top foods for vitamin B12. They actually are the top vitamin B12 containing food. Um, I love um, some of the plant based options, cashews are the nuts with the most iron and nuts or something. We're always snacking on in our house. Uh, my wife and I, we've got we've got a couple of kids, ten and seven, and so we do a lot of traveling. We're kind of partially nomadic. And so we've always got a bag of, of like raw cashews or raw almonds with us. Um, another surprising high iron food for people are things like liver. One of the reasons that a lot of folks are looking at traditional diets and, and offal meats, you know, organ meats, is just they're very nutrient dense. Um, and then pepitas, pumpkin seeds, that's one of my favorites just because I'm always putting those in, in my pesto, for example, or dropping those in salads. Again, it's a plant based form, you don't absorb quite as much, but you know, the point is to get a lot of nutrient density and and you want a mix of plant and animal iron sources.
1: Now you grew up vegetarian, as you mentioned earlier, so did I, Uh, I was a very processed food vegetarian, except for the one home cooked meal that I would eat at night at dinner um, when my mom was making like healthier Indian food. Um, And in the book on the topic of iron, and then connected to mussels and seafood, you share about how Seafood, you know, you started le- reading the literature on these omega-3 fats and how important they were for the brain and the building blocks of, a, of a, much of the brain, but it was hard for you to come around to actually enjoying seafood. Um, t- tell us about that story and then what did you actually do? For anybody who knows that seafood is good, but maybe isn't eating enough, what are some tips and tricks from the doctor himself?
0: For sure, and and thank you for that question because I really do try and walk the talk. I don't want anybody to ever eat food they don't like, and and I think that means really challenging us to expand our palates and understand ourselves as eaters. There's a chapter in the book "Eater Heal Thyself." I'm really asking people to transcend a lot of the dietary trends and a lot of the kind of quote-unquote expert advice. Really think about yourself as an eater and. And I'd never grown up with seafood. Um, I, I funny. I remember when we moved to New York City. I had this realization. It's like oh, I guess I guess this is a, a town with a lot of seafood because we're by the sea, living on an island. And <laughs> just like hadn't struck me right. Like New York is like pizza. It's like no, it's a great seafood town. Um, so the data came out. I didn't eat food. I was looking for more protein sources. Um, and so my first, I actually talked, there was a friend we had, uh, Beth, who was um, a chef that was working, she was freelancing for Martha Stewart's team at the time. And we were at a party and I kind of told her about this data and she's like, you should just try a white fish. I still remember, it was like this little apartment in Waverly Place <laughs> down in uh, um, in the West Village. And she said, you know, put a lot of lemon on there, put a, bat, a pat of butter, maybe a little lemon zest. You need to sprinkle some breadcrumbs, slide it under the broiler for like, you know, seven minutes, 10 minutes, see if it flakes apart. I remember being so terrified, it was gonna be undercooked, right? This whole like, does until it, it flakes with the fork. It's funny, I've never ever worried about that since I've become comfortable with seafood. I think it just shows us how our, our fears get in our way, right? Somehow I'm gonna mess this up and it's gonna like poison everyone. <laughs> it's like, no. <laughs> um, so I started experimenting like that. Then I started some really strange things. Like I loved uh, oddly bacalao fritters, salt cod, just and fish and dipping sauces. And then I realized, you know, I'd always eaten a little seafood. I liked sushi, just a couple things. And so my first steps, and this is our, how we work in our clinic in the brain food clinic is really to think, you know not that I need to start like grilling seafood and making all these fancy things, but just what's our little things I can do like at a sushi, sushi restaurant, can I try a new type of seafood? And also I think a really important challenge for us is can I ask for help in that, right? Like, hey, I'm I'm new at seafood and, and is there anything on the menu? I remember I was once in an event and there was a man from Malaysia and uh, we were talking about food and I said something about mackerel, but it was really fishy for me. And he's like, ginger. He's like, we have an amazing dish. You just got to pile as much ginger on there as possible. And I don't know, like uh, got a little mackerel filet and made it with the ginger. And I was like amazed. It was just, it was so great. And so there's all those, I think ways with seafood that there's different forms like ceviche, there's ceviche recipes in both of my last two books because ceviche is a no cook way for seafood, right? If the thing is like, oh, you don't know how to cook it, don't cook it, you know, burn it in lime juice, add in some onions, some capers, uh, maybe use pre-cooked shrimp, you know, something. And, and so I think one lesson is start small. Another lesson is, um, you know, uh, take no thank you bites. Like I heard a, a great story from Dr. Suvarma yesterday where she's talking about she didn't like seafood but her husband did. And so they had a rule that every time they went out he'd order seafood and she'd try a bite. And, and over the relationship, she's really learned to love seafood. And I just love that story because I think it, it just, um, it shows us how our palate develops. Yeah, maybe the short answer there is, Um, Muscles. We love
1: the long answer, by the way.
0: Muscles are a great thing to try at home. Everyone's scared, but they're amazing. Um, I'd hold off on the big, like the big prize in this, which is the oyster. That's the top animal food on the antidepressant food scale. Um, But those are a little challenging for people because you usually eat them raw and on the half show. You can also do them baked. Of course, Um, fish tacos, amazing way to start with seafood um, as is ceviche. Those, Those would be some thoughts.
1: And based on, and you mentioned the uh, anti-depressive food scale. We'll get to that in a second. Um, Based on your reading of the literature, like for folks who are like, yeah, okay, cool, I want to try seafood or I eat a moderate amount of seafood. What what is really the um, the amount that we should be getting in, based on what's been what you've seen out there in the in the literature, to attain some of the benefits of it?
0: No, so I, I would challenge people that if you think about seafood really being one of your main protein sources, you know, that that most Americans, their main protein source is going to be chicken or beef, you know, uh, that if you can really get seafood in there, So I, in I, my family, in, in my own diet and in the book, I'm pushing for three to five seafood meals a week. That can be lox on your bagel. That can be, there's one of my favorite recipes in the book is the dashi, just because again, I, I try and... Uh, walk the talk. I just started making this last year. Um, I love ramen. I love noodles. I love that kind of umami healing broth, especially like when I'm anxious or upset, just a bowl of like lots of veggies and maybe a hard-boiled egg and some, you know, good buckwheat noodles and some, and I didn't know what that amazing broth is. That amazing broth is dashi. It's made with bonito flakes, which is a fermented, dried, smoked tuna and um, it with kombu with seaweed. So it's this really high iodine, delicious broth. Um, so it's an example of one of the things in the book, I think that just, you know, most folks aren't making dashi at home. And I started doing that and it became one of the, the things I just really began to enjoy really throughout the day is something that was really filling, really healthy. So I would encourage people multiple seafood meals, like three to five, and then having your go-to. Like in our family, our go-to is a wild salmon. We can make a sheet pan of wild salmon. We put a little tartar sauce or special sauce or capers and lemons, and the kids love it. Um, salmon burgers is another one, really easy with canned salmon. Great recipe in the book. That that's you know once a week, once every ten days because kids love it. I uh, try and do an anchovy meal once a week because I think they're really easy and great to use and they're so inexpensive. You know so much thought about this brain food is like, oh, it's expensive, elitist stuff, all this organic blueberries. And it's like, how about a nine dollar tin of anchovies and you're going to have the best brain food on the planet. So those would be some of the seafood meals that come to mind of just really trying to rotate those in. I'm also big on wild shrimp just because those are easy, easy for families, easy for kids, it goes on lots of great stuff.
1: Love it. Let's talk about the food scale. So you and your uh, colleague, take us on the, on the, on the story of that and how that came to be and what it is.
0: Yeah. So we, we found these 12 nutrients that, that Drew's asking about and we said, all right, look, let's, let's look at the USDA literature. Let's look at all of the, these um, uh, you know, foods and what are the foods that, that have the most of these 12 nutrients per calorie. And then it's called a nutrient profiling system. At that time, there had been 27 nutrient profiling systems that have been created in the world. The Andy is one a lot of people have seen. Remember whole foods used to have that score, like kale scored a thousand. Of course, that was the Andy, the aggregate nutrient density index. So our scale, the AFS was the first nutrient profiling system that had ever focused on brain health or mental health. And we tried to make it really straightforward and simple. We just looked at what are the foods that have the most of these nutrients. And uh, we made the list of the most plants and the most animals and, and gave them a score based on you know how they rated. And then the most important thing in nutrient profiling systems, it's not to emphasize a singular food. You know, uh, even though we all wanna know what's number one, what's number one on the plants is watercress. And most people haven't ever eaten watercress. <laughs> but if you look at what are in the top 10 of the plants, it's leafy greens and rainbow vegetables. You look at what's in the top 10 of the animals, it's bivalves, seafood, uh, and organ meats. And not to say that those are the foods you have to eat to beat depression and anxiety, but those are examples of food categories that we want you to think about how they relate to your life. How often are you eating leafy greens? How often are you eating seafood and bivalves? Well, have you ever made mussels at home or had pasta vangole? Um and and that's a way for us all to kind of engage with these very nutrient dense food categories
1: and you know i think the scale it's helpful because as you go further along in the wellness journey and you are reaching a wider audience naturally, you want to have different inclusion points for them. When people are just first starting, you often, I'm sure, get the question as a doctor, just doc, tell me what to eat, right? I'll do whatever. Just tell me what to eat. So scale is nice because it gives a starting point for people. And then there's the sophisticated answer, which is like, okay, great. Let's meet you at where you're at because regardless of what your dietary approach is, we can start the inclusion of these things. And it's really about the disclusion of the ultra processed things because it seems like a big message that I'm getting from your book and and what you talk about overall is like sometimes it's about what you're not eating as well.
0: Yeah. I think I think the, the or main, not
1: eating frequently. Sorry to yeah, clarify. Exactly.
0: I mean I think there's a two-step dance in this right first just cutting out process the reason people get better on every type of wellness diet, whether it's keto or carnivore or pegan or vegan is that they're cutting out processed foods. That That is universally true about all those diets. And it's hard to separate that benefit out from specific benefits. When you have that plus the food SIBO effect, I've joined your dietary tribe, Drew. I think you're amazing. Now I'm following your rules. Of course, I feel amazing. Mm-hmm. So those, those two things account for a lot of the reasons that people get better on all these dietary plans, right? fewer processed foods, but you're right. I am recommending that people put specific things in and not like a fancy protein powder or a supplement or really recommending their foods that contain these nutrients. My last book, Eat Complete, that was really my goal. And it's kind of hard, but of like, can you get all of the nutrients that you need? Can you meet the recommended daily allowance for everything just with food? And you can, but you have to focus on the foods that have a lot of nutrients. There are only a few foods that have EPA and DHA that just, Fatty fish, algae has a little bit, but it's not concentrated, um, and bivalves, that's it. I mean, there's a tiny amount in grass-fed beef, but all the other ALA out there is plant-based. All the other omega-3 is ALA. So um, you asked about what uh, foods, I wanted to answer that question. And that's why in this book, I have these, uh, these power players. And the the reason was I wanted in to represent the food categories. So, you know, it's not that you have to like kale, but there's a reason that kale is a great representative of the leafy green uh, food category because it's so nutrient dense. It's so versatile. Um, It's so, I guess, controversial in the sense that, I don't know, people are now thinking that maybe kale isn't healthy, which is totally untrue, bad, horrible misinformation. That's, I don't even want to start talking about it, Joe. I'm going to get too upset. But these power players, like an anchovy, they 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 they're there to serve as a, a kind of you know not just if you don't eat anchovies, it's fine. You can eat to a depression, is anxiety, but to serve as a real kind of perfect archetypal example of that food category. So an anchovy, high in omega, eighty-seven milligrams of DHA in one little anchovy. Um, you get a complete protein, B12, calcium, all these nutrients. And then, you know, you get to usually a challenge with people in anchovies, which is they don't they don't know what to do with them. I didn't. You know, do you get the paste? Do you get them in olive oil? Do you get them in soybean oil? Do you get them in water? And that's where I think people struggle to do something new, especially if we're hungry, especially if we're feeding a family. And that's where I hope the recipes in the book help people of really trying just make these foods accessible. Things like dashi, things like ceviche, um things like the pesto where you you know no matter where you are on the kind of eater scale there 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 are ways that we can improve your nutrient density and that's the hope of the book. Yeah. And dark chocolate's on the power players let's just say that that was purely for food marketing. No I'm kidding. Dark chocolate has uh, amazing mental health benefits. I mean in the in the literature in the data and it's one of I think a great example of how as a psychiatrist I want people to think a little differently about food that I want it to be a joyful and hedonistic experience for you. I don't want dark chocolate to be like your guilty treat you get one day a week because you followed all these rules. That's not how I roll as a psychiatrist and, and as a, as a food shrink. I want dark chocolate to be part of your daily existence because it's delicious. It's great for your brain. And it's mm-hmm. packed with nutrients.
1: What's your favorite dark chocolate? If you want to give a shout out or a plug to any kind of brands that are out there. A
0: couple. I mean, I've got, I've got like four or five different brands right here with me. I, 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 You know, I like the hue, um, the cashew uh, uh, butter with a little bit of red. It's like, that's my guilty treat. That's not a solid dark chocolate, but that's just such a good yumminess. I get such a
1: good, good job with that brand. Um, It's 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 so amazing. I, I I was an investor in that brand myself and Dr. Hyman, and they just recently sold and just the team there, they just did a great job of just getting a, a better for you chocolate. Cause I think that another part of this is like, you can enjoy things like dark chocolate, especially, I mean, by nature, we're saying dark chocolate. It's going to not have a lot of other gunk. But still, there's naturally greenwashing that happens in the field that's out there. So you can even find dark chocolates that have, they say dark chocolate, but they make that up with a ton of sugar inside. Oh. And now you're not getting the same, the benefits don't translate exactly the same way.
0: Exactly. The way that my favorite uh, dark chocolate is from the La Anita uh, cacao rainforest a kind of farm in Costa Rica. We went down there and I really actually, one of the recipes in the book, the bu- uh, buckwheat cacao pancakes is inspired, by. It. I never had cacao nibs and pancakes before. And it totally changed my brunch and in my life. I mean, I just love cacao nibs, but that's really in terms of palate development. Also a lot of people listening, if you've been and, and a lot of Drew's listeners, probably are, you know, you're off the processed food, but if you, if you're got artificial flavoring, sweeteners, processed foods still creeping into your life, one of the nice things about the whole food journey is, is you develop a, your palate really develops. And so for me now, like a, a cacao bean, you know, to, to chew on that is, is, is pretty close to dark chocolate in terms of my just experience and enjoyment of it, even though it's, it's just the bean. Um, so yeah, but dark chocolate is, is I think a good example of a really nutrient dense food, lots of fiber, uh, lots of magnesium iron, but also, uh, you know, a food that, people aren't oriented towards in a way that it's anything other than you know i don't know like the not healthy version or the not fun what seth rogan called it the not fun version of milk chocolate i was like that's so not true <laughs> it's, it's like so much more dopamine you get from the dark chocolate
1: <laughs> i know i know dark chocolate is amazing um let's take a step back what is it specifically that made watercress score so high and be number one on the list and then How is that something that you're integrating into your uh, diet if you are?
0: Yeah. So watercress scored high is all leafy greens do because they just don't have any calories. So a cup of kale has 33 calories and a cup of watercress has less than that. And so when you have so few calories, that's why you're going to top any nutrition you bring to the table. You're going to top out these nutrient density uh, scales. Watercress, I've incorporated in my diet because it's a leafy green that I never ate before. At all, it's very spicy. I do a lot of arugula, and then one of the fun things about this this kind of work is how much you get to learn about food. And so I didn't know that watercress, for example, is a big part of a Haitian diet, and people in Haiti eat water. Oh, I met a woman from Haiti who said, "Oh, we, we eat watercress almost every day in Haiti," and I had no idea. So so that kind of led me into being curious about this food, and and I can't find it that much. I always think it's a little blessing from the universe. I did. Um, uh, with I did an interview with our friend, Dr. Rupi, the doctor's kitchen, and I yeah. was out in Wyoming and I'm like looking for stuff to make pesto with. I can't find this game. And there's this giant display of watercress. And so, you know, sometimes it shows up in my life and I try and, it's one of those ones I'm working on though. It's a little bit of a challenging one.
1: Yeah, sometimes Asian stores. If you go to like the traditional sort of Asian markets, if you live in a bigger city and have access to it, you can find some over there. Well, since you brought up the kale thing, I feel like some of the people listening who are not in the know of why people would be, you know, uh, not to name any names, but why people would be poo-pooing kale. I think it's worth talking about, at least in the context of helping people understand the lay of the land and providing them with good information. So I want to first start off by saying I was actually a raw foodist for like a couple of years. I did like a hundred percent raw food diet back in the day. And kale was like a huge portion of what we ate. So I think I've I'm so turned off by kale, not because I don't believe the literature on it. (laughs) I just ate kale every day for probably a good three, four years, at least, you know, for lunch and dinner. And, um, you know, some of the conversations that are becoming a little bit more popular in some of the dietary movements are discussions around, yes, there's nutrients and there's also anti-nutrients that certain foods have. And give us a little bit of that, uh, with that context, tell us about why, why would it be that some people would maybe say that kale is not this great food that we're talking about just so that our audience can understand what you were referencing earlier.
0: I think the main motivations to me seem to be bullying and marketing and spreading of misinformation to get clicks. And it's, it's, it's had me really upset to be honest, Drew, um, so I uh, I I think I can tell you where the story started from because the story began as a uh, emotional here. You can tell how much kale means to me. It, it bothers me because we launched National Kale Day. It was years ago after Fifty Shades of Kale came out. And which is uh, one of your books. Yeah, one of my books. And and we wanted to do something to sort of help, you know, a lot of people get exposure to kale. And uh and Uh, So we focused on schools. We focused on the military. Um, We partnered with like large school districts just to like serve kale on National Kale Day. And so LA County decided to serve kale for the first time. Every single public school in LA County was going to serve kale on National Kale Day as part of their efforts to include five superfoods in the menu for all the kids. And so like three or four days before this, I get a call from a journalist saying that he's breaking a story about a scientist who's discovered that kale is toxic. And got to imagine my position here. We've been like really working hard behind the scenes to to get thousands of people, kids eating healthy food. And then suddenly it's this, you know, there's this like, uh, oh, news, like kale's radioactive, kale's absorbing thallium. Then there was a story in the Times that came out. It's like, was it? Kale trouble, kale juicing trouble ahead. And it was a unfact checked story about a woman who'd been drinking kale juice and her dentist said her cavities were caused by it. I mean, I I guess cavities can get caused by any juice, but, you know, it's a little. And then those kind of pieces of information began to um, uh, kind of lead to what we called kale backlash and And this is having been a I I guess, a victim of bullying in my life, you know it, it, it's pretty easy for me to spot when it happens when people are well, they they're uh, they're wanting to kind of tear things down. And uh, and so it's just a little strange to see um, that this thing that you know is a healthy food. Anything that's nutrient dense is really good at bioconcentrating. If it's a fish, if it's a mussel, if it's a kale plant that organism's job is to extract things from its environment and bioconcentrate them. So if you grow fish in lots of microplastics and mercury and dirtiest water, it's not gonna be healthy. It's gonna concentrate those things. And the same thing with kale. Uh, And so the the anti-nutrient movement, I also have not seen evidence that that is relevant to human health. And maybe I'm not informed in that, but I've looked pretty hard. And I think if you look at things um, uh, uh, you know, like lectins, well, lectins basically disappear when you cook food. And things like beans, well, you always cook them, and boil them at pretty high temperatures, which gets rid of them. When you hear rumors like, oh, kale oxalates, you know, actually kale is the definition of a low oxalate green. So when I see stuff like that, it, it it really uh, bothers me because, and I think it's because I'm a clinician, Drew, so you just sit with people where the misinformation hurts their health. And I think that much like COVID exposed how selfish can people be, especially when there's not a direct correlation, right? there was no accountability if you gave somebody COVID or not. And that just was pretty rare. Nobody really know where you got it from. So there's not really accountability for anybody, especially a lot of wellness influencers of just kind of saying whatever they want. And, and I think when you're a physician you're, or a health coach or a clinician where you see people, what happens? You know, I see what happens when people get taken off of all their meds and put on a, a strange diet. Or I see what happens when people get put on lots of supplements instead of having a psychotherapy. Um, or you see when people come in just scared. You know, They're just scared because they've heard all this garbage that's designed to scare people. So I think that's that's where uh, it hits a real personal note with me. I've just, I don't know. I've been around bullies in my life. I've been bullied in my life. And I just, I don't know. I saw an interview recently between a couple of interviewers and it's just, it just felt like bullying, you know? It's like, when are we going to like wake up? When are we going to be woke and stop judging and bullying one another about our beliefs and start encouraging one another to live healthy? So that's well, my
1: feeling. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you uh, spoke up about it because I think it's important for... Again, if you're listening to this podcast, I know there are some new people, and welcome to those folks. If you aren't familiar with Drew Ramsey, you got to follow him on Instagram. He's putting out a lot of great content, and get his new book, um, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety. Check out some of our other interviews as well. But for the folks that have been listening for a while, they're walking down the sophisticated pathway of having a good sense. You know, and we all eat some level of processed foods, even if it's healthy processed foods, right? There's healthy processed foods that we're all eating. A the whole,
0: there's a whole new marketing push of healthy processed foods that are grown in the lab. Yeah. Right?
1: Like and, what, what, are we supposed to feel about that? And you know, that they're, they're, we're all doing the best that we can. And I think it's good to have the discussions around things because really the larger message, one of my, one of my favorite interviews that we've done in the past is that there's a dear buddy of mine from the New York times. His name is, um, Anahad O'Connor. And he wrote a diet, he wrote an article called, um, I'm going to paraphrase the title, uh, but people can Google it. If they type in Anahat O'Connor, New York Times, he said, basically, is there a perfect diet? Right? I remember
0: this article. I, I know his his work well. I love he uh, he wrote a recent article. Um, I was going to message him to say he should include mental health. It was all about physical health. But
1: yeah, well, shoot me a note and I can I can connect you guys together. He does some really great work and a very balanced guy. And And like you and me, he's been through a lot of sort of a, he grew up in sort of a a more like very spiritual family. And for them, that meant like being vegetarian. And then later on in life, kind of like your journey, my journey, he switched to a different, you know, direction. So he's also just seen, um, you know, he's been through a lot of different stuff and he strongly believed one thing and another thing. And that typically leads to people who are a little bit more balanced in their approach, you know, than you how passionate they were about one topic so they can understand why other people would be passionate about that now. Anyways, I digress. The article basically, for those that have not seen it, was is there a perfect diet and what can modern day hunter gatherer society tell us like is there an ideal diet for human beings when we look at modern day hunter gatherer societies we see that they all eat different levels and percentage of macros some of them eat a lot lot more vegetables that are there and don't eat very they don't eat much plant food uh, sorry meat or seafood definitely a lot of seafood, but less meat. And then some are eating exclusively that. Some are drinking milk is the primary way that they get their calories. Um, I've talked about it in the past, but there's this tribe in uh, Africa called the Samburu. They're, they're cousins of the Maasai. I got to go visit them a few years ago. They primarily get 90% of their calories from drinking milk from these grass-fed cows that they have. And they've been living this way for you a know, thousand plus years. But the, the larger message, which I see in your work and your themes is that we've seen that people have had a breakdown of eating a lot of different ways. The human body is so resilient. We can eat a lot of different things and we shouldn't really be putting any one food on the pedestal. I'm talking about whole foods here. And that also means that we really shouldn't be putting any one food on the opposite of whatever a pedestal is, the chopping block, the guillotine. Right. That that doesn't make any sense because the themes from these groups are, a lot of different things work for different people, but the key is whatever diet they're eating, they're getting diversity from that diet and they're eating a lot of different stuff regardless of what diet they're eating.
0: Yeah. I, I think that you know, it's um, it reminds me of a phrase that I'm a little scared of, that sort of everything in moderation, because I don't really think that's true anymore. I think that's been used as an excuse for processed foods to really, really creep in. But I love the point you make because I think it's essential nutritional psychiatry. The human body is really walking around to do one thing, which is nourish and feed our brain. And that's one of the reasons your brain feels compelled to kind of go after almost anything sometimes, especially sweet things, is because it's thinking, it's not thinking, ooh, cookie, bad for me. It's thinking, hmm, cookie, I'm going to burn that maybe in two weeks when I can't find any cookies. And and so... uh, we really can survive on a large number large different mixes of macros, different uh, mixes of food groups. Uh, I think what the new book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety really tries to do is ask people to kind of elevate or transcend this diet culture that's, that, that's really emerged in the wellness world, right? Of, it's kind of like politics now. It's basically competing factions of people screaming at each other. And if you're a part of that, I don't think you're part of the solution anymore. I think it, uh, there's a lot of primitive projection that goes on. And what is better is for us to really look inwardly on what foods are working for us, what foods can help us better hone and refine our values and what foods can help us be in the world in a way that supports our connections, our mental health, our creativity. That, that's really what, um, what I hope this book achieves and helps people with
1: are there any like super healthy foods, right? Based on the data, but like you actually just don't really like eating them. Like what's on your category of like, we know this is good, but just look personal preference wise, this is not my jam.
0: Yeah. I struggle with the nutrient density in liver and organ meats, you know, like I don't make pate on the regular or anything like that. Um, even though it, it feels like that's a very nutrient dense choice. Um, I, is that,
1: is, that a, is that a taste thing or do you think it's sort of like, a, I was vegetarian in the past and so I just can't get over the idea of doing this and, and including it in and I don't want to cook it. What What is that for you?
0: Uh, I think it's habit, not having really cooked it or it been part of my process. And then I did my first attempt, I put in too much liver. I was mixing in liver in with the taco meat, but I put in like way too much liver and it was, and it was, it's a, it's a little like, it's a really... You can taste the minerality in it, which I think can be a little bit much at first. Um uh so that's one. And then I think fermented foods, I'm working. I mean, I've got I've got a good kombucha game. I I make a little sauerkraut, but I always feel that the um uh, kefir I'll make a smoothie here and there, but I I I feel that's I wasn't raised with a lot of fermented foods, and so that's one that you know, I like them, but it's just, again, I, I don't, you know, I don't have like a go-to pate recipe or a bunch of, you know, go-to fermented recipes that, um, that are so much a part of things. Now, well, one of the reasons in this book, for example, one of the reasons I like doing books is it sort of challenges you. So there's a kimchi fried rice in here. Um, it's a rainbow kimchi fried rice, which I I'd not experienced that. We were working with a recipe developer, how to get more fermented foods and, ah, oh, love that recipe. It's so good. So, um, You know, I hope that uh, those are the the ones that that come to mind in terms of, and then the one I struggle with probably is is the pasta. I just really, I like carbohydrates, gnocchi and pasta a lot. And so my, my, I don't know, kind of compromise with that is I try and use really high quality pastas. uh, and have found some some versions that we really like in our house, some that are gluten- free, some that aren't. and then to really top them with really nutrient dense stuff. So not you know sure occasionally just have some red sauce, but to have more pestos or more seafood or get more olives and veggies in there. Um, but those are you know those are some of the some of the spots.
1: Where does the conversation of sort of um, we've we've done a lot of recent episodes as I've started to get into the world of sort of cont- continuous glucose monitoring and um, and paying attention to that and just sort of seeing how I respond maybe differently to other people who, you know, certain foods and keeping a balanced blood sugar in the day. Where does that fall in, in your world and how do you think about that or communicate that to patients?
0: So for a long time, I've been interested in some of the metabolic markers that we can use in mental health to understand where our patients are And hemoglobin A1C, which is kind of a, a three-month marker of, you know, how you've been doing with your blood glucose regulation. But until continuous glucose monitoring, we didn't really have this type of data, and we've never had it or applied it in mental health and psychiatry. And the new clinical protocols that we're thinking about of how do we really engage with patients, it's a piece of data along with some of the new sleep metrics that we'd like to use. And I think the continuous glucose monitoring is very interesting in terms of really engaging people in a very granular way about how things are affecting their blood sugar and how things that like, you just don't think about, like the salad dressing, you know, was like super sugary. And so your blood pressure spikes, even though like you just had a salad um, or uh, I think it also leads to, and it's where the consumer market is really leading the conversation so but it leads to the spot of what is actionable data and what does data mean? So, you know, that your blood sugar goes up and down. That's pretty normal. That happens all out the day for lots of people. And and the idea that we're going to keep it in this really regular spot, that's a human idea. And I I think there's lots of support for keeping your blood sugar regulated and low. But um, for some people, this data turns into kind of neurotic stuff. Uh, And for some people, the data turns into real health transformation. And I think it's going to be interesting to see as we all figure this out. Like I started monitoring my sleep. I love it. It's really, really helped me get better quality sleep consistently for months and months now. You know, that classic phrase, right? What you don't monitor, you can, we can't manage. What you don't measure, and so um, it's going to be interesting to see how we apply that. I think where it's great is for people. So many people in our country stu- struggling with diabetes and obesity get that CGM on and just because your continuous glucose monitor it just it's right in your face then. There's no denying that there's there's an issue going on. And I think that's where it's also can be really helpful and motivating.
1: I want to chat about, I want to go back to these 12 nutrients for better brain because there's just so much gold inside of there. And I want to give a little bit of a preview of some of the stuff inside the book. So I want to pick a couple of them uh, as we kind of wind down the interview that, that typically don't get maybe the attention that they deserve. Yeah, some of these nutrient categories. So one of them is choline. Tell us why it matters in the context of beating depression and anxiety.
0: Choline matters in part because people really haven't heard about this nutrient. It's a cousin of folate. So folate, vitamin B9 is important. It's folic acid is in the prenatal vitamin because folate and B9 are so important as we form new brain cells and, and, and deal with um, inflammatory factors. Um, actually the the neural tube in in utero doesn't fully close if you don't have enough folate. The same data exists for choline. If you don't have enough choline, you you have troubles with your neural tube. Um, Choline is interesting because you you find, because I I like it as a nutrient because it's like, it brings a little jazz to the the party in terms of the debate, because where do you find it? You find choline in eggs, in tofu, and in liver. And I like that because (laughs) it kind of, of uh, you know, those are three foods we all have kind of an opinion about, right? And um, uh, choline is interesting because it's part of acetylcholine and phosphatidylcholine. Um, acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter. Phosphatidylcholine is one of these long fats um, that it is part of your brain and your brain cells. And choline is one of the only nutrients that's been correlated with anxiety. It's just just a correlational study. So there's, um, there it's actually one of the parts of the book we wanted to include anxiety just because there's it's the most diagnosable mental health condition, but, uh, in America, but there's not a lot of data about food and anxiety. However, clinically we have a lot of data and experience It's just helping people, you know, eat more smaller meals or really spot where like alcohols or sugars are triggering their panic or, um, help them when they are triggered and they're an anxious eater to just you know, make better choices in terms of still eating to calm yourself down, but choosing something that's maybe more nutrient dense or going to not spike your blood sugar. Um, so choline is, uh, you know, serves all of those functions. And is, again, it's, again, just one of these nutrients that I think a lot of people haven't heard about, I, I hadn't heard about. And I think it's one of those that, that helps as you think about things like eggs, liver and tofu in your diet.
1: I want to touch on another one that I feel like people know of, and it's, but but they don't maybe really understand what it does and the role that it plays in our health. And that's vitamin A, right? And I don't think it gets as much as attention as we talk about like vitamin D, vitamin C, people know about those things, but vitamin A, give us the breakdown of the 411 of that.
0: All right, so vitamin A is interesting because it's a part of an elite group of nutrients that are what are called fat soluble, K, A, D, and E. You know, and when you think about that list, it's like, all right, we've all heard about D. People have heard a little bit about vitamin E. They haven't heard all the magic of it. Nobody's ever heard anything about vitamin K. Even though it's this fat-soluble nutrient, it's super concentrated in leafy greens. And then vitamin A, you know, we know about vitamin A kind of in terms of related to like eye health, right? We know if we don't get vitamin A, maybe we go blind. But vitamin A is this really fascinating, very big vitamin, and we get it in two ways. We get it in the retinol in, in, in a kind of real vitamin A form from animal products, mainly things like, like liver. Um, but we also make vitamin A from plants, from carotenoids. And this, this is where things like orange plants, which have beta uh, carotene in them, there are uh, three or four different, what are called carotenoids. It's a family of plant, plant molecules that we turn into vitamin A. So vitamin A is one of these things, it's one of these nutrients that I'm watching just because we're learning a lot about how it is involved in brain health and brain development. There are all these kind of very um, reasonably unmapped, but very exciting kind of uh, vitamin A receptors and pathways. And so it's one of those nutrients like vitamin K where it's clearly related to mental health. There's emerging science and emerging data. And, you know, the only part of our brain that is outside of our skull case are some of the cells in our retina um i heard this on andrew Huberman podcast and i just remembered it from medical school <laughs> he listening to him takes me all the way back to neuroanatomy it's like it's very <laughs> it's very comforting to me somehow but it reminded me of that and and you know and your retina is just full of, of vitamin a i mean they're 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 um retinoid receptors and retinol is, is vitamin a so those are some of the ways to, to kind of You know, for me, I guess as a farm biologist is that really concrete, like one of our most sophisticated functions of our nervous system is vision and it takes a lot of brain power and vitamin A is so intimately involved in vision that it just kind of right there in some ways shows to me how it should be and is on the list Um, and and how it's really kind of underappreciated and underrecognized and at least a simple message, right? you should be eating more orange vegetables. That's why we say eat the rainbow. and We're looking for those oranges and recommending sweet potatoes and carrots and orange peppers is for carotenoids. Uh,
1: Inside the book, there's a whole section on sort of like actually turning these meals into like reality. And one of the ones that I grew up in a culture that had a lot of spice in it. And I'm not talking about spicy, although there is a lot of spicy food in the Indian uh, traditional um, diet, which actually... I later found out isn't as traditional as I thought that really started the spiciness in Indian food started more in the 1600s through the spice trade um, but before that Indian food wasn't as spicy nonetheless there's a lot of great spices that I grew up with that added a lot of color flavor and I didn't know it at the time but also nutritional benefits and brain boosting benefits so what do you want people to know about spices when it comes to their food and the role that it plays with our health and our brain
0: I want people to know that they should use uh, more of them and and be more adventuresome with them because spices, and I'm gonna put herbs in there too, uh, have lots and lots of minerality and nutrients to them. People don't really, actually some of the most nutrient dense things because, you know, they have have no calories basically. Um, And then some, you know, with spices and herbs we're we're after it's like a very concentrated source of phytonutrients, phytonutrients are plant-based molecules. So when we're eating rosemary and you have all that kind of pininess of all the terpenes in there and all the rosemarins in there, those are phytonutrients phytonutrients we think about as antioxidants but they're really a lot more than that they're they're signaling molecules so you think about something like curcumin or um you think about sulforaphane you think about these different phytonutrients and you should think about them as is uh, many of them really directly impact uh, your dna and how genes get expressed so it uh I think also different spices and herbs are what really help people appreciate more vegetables. And we think about the major problems that that Americans are having. It's around eating more plants and doing that in a healthy way. You know, olive oil and herbs and a little bit of salt. That's a great way to, that's how, I don't know, I'm going to say probably 80% of the vegetables we eat in our house, we just sheet pan Lots of olive oil, a little salt, some herbs and spices, put it in there, (laughs) pull it out and eat it. I mean, it's, so I I think that they're essential to really helping add flavor diversity to your diet and and change things up a little bit. Uh, And then there's the nutritional benefits of those phytonutrients.
1: I heard you on a Tom Bilyeu's podcast as I was preparing for this. I wanted to kind of hear some of the interviews you did as I was reading the book. And one of the studies that you mentioned inside of there in the opening of the conversation was you were talking about. Some of the studies that came out about, um, I believe it was the pandemic and nutrition. Uh, mm-hmm. Can you talk about that?
0: Yeah, sure. I've got, I've got a couple of them right here. Uh, <laughs> this one's anxiety and depression and COVID 19 survivors, the role of inflammatory and clinical predictors. I think the one I mentioned to Tom was a study out of Vietnam with over 10,000 people in it, just a cross sectional study, but an interesting one. It looked at nutritional kind of uh, dietary patterns in individuals and found this very strong correlation, the strongest correlation I've actually ever seen. That if you went into a quarantine and you had a poor quality diet, you had a 1000% increase in the risk of depression. And, and, and I think it just, you know, it goes to show um, Uh, the power of food, I think it also goes to show how if everything else gets taken away that supports our mental health, our connections, our work, our identity, um, our daily rituals, uh, which is what happened, we're left with food. And even when that's the only lever we can pull, I think what that study showed me or suggests at least is, okay, even in a pandemic, when everything else is bad, if you keep pulling that lever and eating well, you can insulate and protect
1: your mental health. And I think it's also, you know, I don't really. I I see you as an incredibly kind, welcoming, supportive. And the only time I've seen you get upset is when somebody tried to attack Kale as you were earlier. And I, uh, I think it's good. To, I think it's good to be upset. I think it's good to be upset. I'm embarrassed. You got you did get me upset. I, I wasn't expecting <laughs> that. I got a little emotional there. It's. Uh, I it's, think being upset is good. <laughs> I think getting emotional is good. It translates our real feelings. I do feel, I understand it. I understand it in the context of sort of public health, but I do feel a little upset with these low cost solutions being so accessible with how much money that we spent on other interventions, vaccines, other stuff. Great. It's all needed But with these low cost tools there and them having such an impact on our health, on our mental health and on our immune system, because the same diet that's inside of your book is also going to make you more resilient when it comes to chronic disease and recovering from a COVID-19 knock on wood that anybody would would get that or has gotten that. I do feel upset a little bit when I look into it, I'm saying, you know, the studies out there the data and the research is out there and there's people that are suffering that are looking for solutions and largely the message that was translated in the media was seek out comfort foods alcohol sales are way up you know by 13 to 30% depending on the state that you're in and that part is a little bit of upsetting i can then pull back and look at it and just chalk it up to lack of education, lack of awareness, lack of knowledge. Of course they're going to be promoting those things because there's not an understanding about it. But do you ever did you ever get upset or did you ever have strong emotions when you were looking at some of the interventions that were coming in and really what was being excluded when it came to the approach of how to handle the pandemic?
0: Um I did. I got upset that we have um, so much access to digital technology, so much access to communication technology. And the pandemic exposed how America has one of the worst healthcare systems of any developed country. And and I think there are a lot of people who don't want to hear that. You know, They want to kind of dwell in a delusion of American greatness when it comes to healthcare. And it's a delusion. Uh, America's, especially mental health care system, is is horrible. And it's horrible in comparison to what we could achieve. And the same thing is true with COVID. We're seeing it now. Uh, uh, One of the benefits of being in clinical practice is I talk to dozens of people every week. So I've seen all of my patients go from, I don't know when I'm going to get the vaccine. I, I don't really have a condition, you know, to getting the vaccine like last week. And so there is a way that when we are focused on our health, we can mobilize and not become one of the sickest, sickest of the developed countries, period. And unless we focus on that, we're just going to continue. The, the, the system currently, I mean, I don't mean to sound like an anti system guy, but the system is currently this really kind of scary marriage of marketing of really, really disgusting really, really pathogenic food, food that makes us sick, makes us obese, diabetic, depressed, and anxious. And and then primarily a system that delivers uh, pharmaceutical solutions to that. And certainly there are a lot of people in the mix of this uh, who, who really need meds and benefit from meds. There's lots of people who eat well and still get depression and anxiety. There are lots of people who eat well and they still get obesity and diabetes. But it's not the numbers that we're seeing. And the so I do get frustrated. I think in the beginning of the pandemic, I um, it felt frustrating to me to also see for the first time influencer culture and kind of a wellness culture and social media being a major lens by which people got information and misinformation. And I think it was concerning to me because as, a, as somewhat of a health expert, uh, there aren't a lot of people that I trust to answer big questions about viral pandemics. There are a few. Um, uh, it's kind of like GMOs. There are only a few people I really trust around that issue because it's a really complex thorny issue with a lot of people having strong opinions. And and I think it was just a little, um, I don't know, I lived in a part of the country where I, you know, I got mocked for wearing masks last March. Um, and people, are oh, you doing all right, buddy? You know, I, I live in really rural Indiana. Um, people didn't believe in masks um, for a while, for a long while, and didn't believe in the virus. And, and that, I don't think that part made me mad on an individual level. I mean, I, I here in my community, I thought my job is to lead by example and to describe what I've seen and to, you know, allow people to make their own choices. But um, but I agree, it, 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 there, there's also one other thing that upset me Drew, what upset me is there is a way that people with metabolic illness started getting blamed a little bit. It, 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 there was a kind of theme about that in the wellness world, right, that, that you know the reason COVID-19 is so bad is because people are so metabolically unhealthy. And there was something a little tone deaf to me about that where if you're a person with really dysregulated metabolic health, you're overweight by 50 or 60 pounds, you have high blood sugar, your immune system's compromised, you've got multiple medical conditions and you're sitting and you're listening to that. I, you know, you, for whatever whatever reasons maybe you've made in the past or not to, to be in that situation, it's kind of like people were getting blamed for that and almost like, oh, there's just an instant solution. You just decide you're not gonna be have metabolic problems with your health and you don't anymore.
1: Yeah. It's like fat. It's like fat shaming without the understanding. That's like, you think anybody wants to be fat? And also too, do they have any decision? And also too, it's like, you got to take people on the layers of it. I would say that it's true. The reason that we are primarily in this mess as the United States, besides an infrastructure challenge in health is that we do have one of the sickest. And if you talk about it from a medical standpoint, obese population from a medical standpoint. Now let's go to the next layer. Just like you were taking us down the layers of things, because we can't end the conversation there. The next layer, let's look at even access and let's look at the most disenfranchised communities. You, Anybody you talk to out there in the world, they want to be healthy. Are they being supported to, or are they being marketed and sort of fed low cost, low cost food options that are profit, yes, but also, too, that's what they can afford. Why? Because even, you know, systemically, insurance is very challenging for people to get access to. Let's look at, like, how people have to work and maternity leave. Like, as you go through the layers of the conversation and you talk about obesogens in in our foods and in our environmental health, you start to realize that the system is doing exactly what it was designed to do And it's not helpful if we, I think it's important to call things out, but it's not helpful if you just stay focused on there. And as you said, people don't want to be unhealthy. They don't want to be metabolically unhealthy. Let's talk about actual solutions that will get them there and meet them at the layer that they're at because most likely they're probably not listening to this podcast or reading your book. So we have to get in the school system like you were doing, right? And have kale as one of the options and make it actually healthy. So you just got to go down the layers of it and make sure that it's a complete conversation because if it's not, you're just missing the boat on the whole thing.
0: Yeah. And I think we're in a culture cultural moment right now where... I, I, I see some of that deepening, particularly in the conversation about mental health um, and, and about a type of wokeness about the patriarchy and about misogyny. I mean, I think there's finally becoming legitimate conversation about that. Um, it, just part of what you're saying reminds me also of the disparity in medicine. Remember all that vitamin D data? Oh, vitamin D, it's all about vitamin D. You know who's vitamin D deficient in America? Anyone with pigment in their skin. And that statistic, that, that, that way of, and lots of people are vitamin D deficiency, but vitamin D deficiency, it goes as, as you have from white to more Brown to black skin, the rates of vitamin D deficiency approach 90%. So again, that that statistic that got kind of pulled out and almost framed like everyone should just be taking vitamin D, it's pulled out of the context of why are people vitamin D deficient? Who is vitamin D deficient, um, and how that really correlates very highly with with a lack of access to public health, to public health education, uh, to sunlight. So, um, so there are many layers. I think it's one of the places you know, mental health can get really confusing and feels like it has lots and lots of layers. And I think that's one of the other things that's really inspired me in nutritional psychiatry. Because you can come and see me and there's a lot of questions, you know, should you be on meds or not? Like, do you have bipolar illness or not? Um, Should you, uh, you know, get into psychotherapy or which type? But then you're going to go home and eat dinner. And, It just seems like in some ways in peeling back all of the layers, there's a set of foods like olive oil or like wild salmon that reasonable health experts all agree on. They're good for you. They're good for your mental health. They're good for your brain health. And, and I I hope, I hope this book really does help focus in on the importance of feeding brains and mental health, especially this year, because, because it is really layered and it does get you know, I think that leads to us feeling, at least for me, feeling kind of overwhelmed and like, I'm not sure what, to, you know, there's so many layers, like what, which one do I start at? And, and that's where I just hope everybody feels encouraged wherever you are in your journey. First, to, to, to hear both of our, both Drew's encouraging you to take care of your mental health and fitness, but also that there are really good options for you, you know, and they're right in front of you often and, and to feel really empowered to choose them. Um, they might, you know, all, all of the best choices might not be there, but there are probably some good choices there.
1: Totally. And I see that, you know, so much of a, even in our wellness world, the anti system or anti establishment, I see everything as like sort of action reaction. It's not helpful if we stay there. But a lot of that came from many times people going to their doctor and saying, hey, should my diet, should I do something with my diet? I feel like crap. Right. And I heard maybe that there's a connection between my gut and my brain health. And largely, for the most part, I'm sure you've heard so many anecdotal stories as you get a lot of patients that have been through the system. People saying that I went to WebMD and they said that sugar has nothing to do with my, you know, mental health. Or my doctor said my diet has absolutely zero. Yes,
0: there is a place big, for. Me- I had one of the biggest leaders in psychiatry a couple of years. Have a big story go up after I had some thing, some press piece about food and I had a big piece go up that food has no effect on brain health or mental health.
1: And and so it's like there was a reaction to that. Now I see that there's a reaction to like you know, the wellness community going a little bit too far. And and you know what? The good thing is I'm just excited for conversations like this because I do largely believe that people want good information and they want real tools and solutions. And that's what I feel a lot of what I'm getting from your book to meet them where they're at. And they want to go through the layers, right? They want to have a sophisticated conversation. And I think that we brought that to them here um, in what we covered. And I just want to say that, you know, I really appreciate your stance in the world of who you are being for people and uh, a grounded force of, of, of really not demonizing any one system or approach and just seeing that just people want solutions, they're suffering and let me figure out the best ways to get them to them. So I applaud you and all your efforts and, and uh, I wanna congratulate you on a, another book that's out there. And uh, it's got such fantastic, again, the illustrations, I think for somebody who's also very visual, We'll link to some of them. I don't know if you've posted any of them on Instagram or if you have like a free chapter or something that's out there, but I think people should really uh, check them out because it's a great way to feel like you just got, I know you have a course for practitioners, but it's like a little miniature course for those people that maybe don't want to go at like a deep, deep level, but we want to go deep enough that we can have that dinner table conversation and remind people why that kale salad that they're about to eat and those oysters are actually uh, good for their brain and body.
0: That's great. That's exactly what I hope happens. And I hope people feel informed and inspired and empowered. Um, and thank you for another great conversation, Drew. It's always, you've been, you've been uh, one of, one of the folks who's really uh, been encouraging to me personally over the years to, to do more of this. And so this, this book, you know, in a small ways comes back to a conversation I remember having with you sitting in Palm Springs at, uh, what was that? Wanderlust festival, maybe must've been two and a half, three years ago now. And you just, you really encouraged this type of effort for me. So I'm really grateful to you and, and to our community. And, and to, as you say, to the conversation, right, that, that I think it got emotional earlier is that when I think the conversation turns towards duping people, confusing them and instilling them with fear, I kind of decided a couple of years ago, I'm just done with that. And I'm done with people who do that. And I'm going to call that out whenever I see it, because that's not good medicine and that's yeah. not good. And, um, and at the same time, I really just want to flood the airways as I think you do with a lot of joyfulness and gratitude and encouragement at all of the stuff we have now, all of the exciting opportunities and science we have now for people to improve their mental fitness and to talk about their mental health. People are talking about mental health, like never before, really. we just, just, uh, just you know, recording a couple of days after this. Explosion of information uh, about the royal family, and talking really seriously about mental health, and 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 how do we talk about it? And how do we think about it? And, and how stigmatized it is? And so, there's 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 many miles for us to still go uh, to get healthy, to reduce stigma, to get people access. But I think these conversations are helping us get there. So I thank you for them.
1: Absolutely true. Thank you for being on the Broken Brain Podcast. Uh, You got some bonuses with the book. I always like to shout them out. Uh, So tell people where they can get to get all the great stuff that's included when they order slash pre-order the book.
0: Yeah, so we have a bunch of pre-order incentive Uh, to give people wild salmon, olive oil, fresh pressed olive oil, um, a membership to Thrive Market. We've got some pre-order downloads that you can see. And these are all on my website, drewbramseymd.com. There's a picture of the book. Click on that. It'll take you. You'll get to see the incentives and then we're going to be pulling out winners over the next couple of weeks. And so uh, we've got some mystery boxes where I stuff all my favorite brain-pleasing treats in there. And so anybody can uh, can sign up for those. And I really appreciate all your, your support with the book. And, and most importantly, spreading the word about it and trying it yourself. That's what's most important to me, whoever you are listening, is I really hope that this information helps you change your mental health and your brain health and really stays with you in the grocery store and at the dinner table, not scolding you, but really encouraging you, cheering you on as you make choices for new, more nutrient density, more new brain cells, and uh, taking really, really good care of yourself with just loving, joyful self-nourishment. That's what I hope for everybody listening and for you too, Drew. So uh, cheers to all that. And and maybe we all have our lives blessed with those things.
1: Beautiful, brother. Well, we'll have the links to all that in the show notes, the book, to follow Drew Ramsey on social media as well. Drew, you're a force for good in the world, my friend. I'm honored to know you. Thank you again for being on here. Appreciate you, brother.
0: Thank you so much, Drew.
1: Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search there, find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes, especially when it comes to your health.